Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lori Clark Show. This episode of my podcast is brought to you with the help of ZoomUs, a video and audio conferencing interface. It's important to know that I'm in no way sponsored by Zoom. I just want to tell you how much I love it. It is very reliable, easy to use, and provides excellent audio and video files that my team and I produce to share the power of story with you. Another non-sponsored, couldn't do without, but just have to tell you how good it is, is Squarespace. When they say it is the all-in-one platform, it really is true. I go into the back end of my website multiple times a day, adjust things, post podcast, add links, and look at our show's analytics, which all sync across my devices. And when I need an image, Squarespace provides an excellent resource that's powered by Unsplash. Now for my most favorite feature, the Squarespace app. Um, Being a working mom, there never seems to be enough time in my day. So when my daughter's in ballet, I sit in my car and upload, post, and manage everything on my website from the app. It's really cool and seamless. Squarespace is really, really simple and very dedicated to helping me create a brand of excellence. So with that, big shout out to Zoom, Squarespace, and Unsplash. Thank you for helping me tell people's stories. With that said, let's move on to the best part about today, the show. Please allow me to welcome my next guest on The Lori Clark Show. Today's episode is on conflict in the workplace. And I'm very excited to welcome you back, Sue, to the show because uh, the last interview we did on anxiety was awesome. And you. you gave us some really, really helpful tips. And you also just explained the, the, the just sort of what we need to know about it. And, and now we're going to do that here okay. with this particular show. Um, we're going to talk about conflict, unproductive conflict, what happens when you misunderstand facts and situations and throw expectation in there. We're going to talk about what happens when your buttons are pushed because it's something that you know, you're cycling through in your own life. And, um, and new on my list, and I did say to you early on, I should just rip up all my notes and throw them away. <laughs> because in the introduction, then when we were talking, you have just been uh, at a, conducting a workshop about respectful workplace. And that's around bullying in the workplace. And so, you know, my notes might go out the window right now because we get to talk and I'm, I'm excited about this. This is something that, you know, uh, if you work at any point in your life, whether you're on a construction site, whether you're in a dental office, whether you're, you know, wherever you are, um, this show is important and it pertains to everyone, leader or employee. So Sue, Tension Wozni. <laughs> Inside joke. It's a joke. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. I'm happy to be here. Oh. So, what I kind of like to start is how we shape our beliefs 
in conflict. So if you think back to when you were, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper in your parents' house and you watched people do conflict, like your parents, your aunts, your uncles, whoever came over to your house, um, and your parents gave you possibly overt messages around conflict, but certainly subliminal messages around conflict. So we form our beliefs and attitudes around conflict based on our, basically our family of origin, our food, as we call it. And so if your experience early on was a, a sort of a bodies and feelings get hurt, so conflict's bad, then you kind of walk around with that paradigm kind of burned into your, your psyche. And so most people, if they have that sort of paradigm, they walk around sort of avoiding conflict in survival mode. Just try to avoid, don't want to get into conflict. But of course, conflict happens because it's inevitable that we get into conflict. So we generally react to conflict based on our belief system. So if my belief system is conflict is bad, bodies and feelings get hurt, I'll probably try to avoid and escape first. If I feel trapped, I might attack verbally or physically, but mostly I'll probably go passive aggressive, which is this sort of subversive kind of conflict management, which is indirect and, and uh, kind of hard to pin down. So there's a consequence to that. So the consequence generally is the conflict doesn't get resolved, possibly gets worse, relationships can start to deteriorate, and there's a certain amount of personal stress that goes along with conflict. If anybody you know, out there is a conflict avoider, you know how hard it is to avoid conflict. You drive into the parking lot at work, and there's that guy you had that run-in with three days ago, parked four stalls down. Do you get up and walk in the door with him? No. You pretend to look for something in your vehicle. Until talk he goes on the in. phone? <laughs> yeah. Until he goes in and then you find an alternate entrance to the building, which <laughs> reinforces conflict is bad. I don't like it. So the first thing we have to do is examine our beliefs and attitudes around conflict and at least artificially at first shift our paradigm that conflict has actually got some positives to it. It's an informer. It tells us there's a problem. So if we pay attention to that negative kind of feeling and not focus on the feeling, but what's causing the feeling, then we can actually start to address that external um, stimulus, whatever it is. So if I can say, okay, conflict is an opportunity for growth and change. If we work through it, we can probably have a better relationship and a better understanding. It helps us to clarify our own personal norms and boundaries. So if you're kind of stepping on my toes and you don't know it, I can't really expect you to stop doing it unless I tell you and we talk about it. So if I can shift that, conflict happens, I deal with it kind of more head on in a respectful way and then we resolve it and then I can shift my paradigm to go, hey, I didn't die. Maybe conflict's not so bad, but it takes a lot of personal work and some learned overlay in order to be able to shift that and it takes a great deal of self-awareness and self-management. Okay, but what happens if you get out of the car, you see the guy four stalls down, you say to yourself, okay, I listened to Sue Wozni on the Lori Clark show and she said, and she encouraged us to, to go head on with this and to present my, myself and to not run away. So I am going to walk to the door. If our paths meet, our paths meet. So you walk to the door, you're looking straight ahead, you're feeling great, and you turn to the person because you both get to the door at the same time and you say, hi. And he says, (laughs) okay, help us here. (laughs) Well, first of all, I probably wouldn't ambush the guy. (laughs) 
I would, I would probably let him go in. And then at some point through the day, when I felt like I was prepared and ready, I would probably go knock on his door and say, Hey, can you and I have a conversation? We, we had a run in a couple of days ago and it's just not sitting right with me. And I just want to kind of get clear with you and ask you about it. Now, one of the big things I've learned is you don't go in and tell somebody about the problem you're having with them. You ask them about it. Okay. So the difference between asking and telling is? Curiosity. If I go in, I'm, I've got a bone to pick with you and I want you, I've got a problem with you. Well, you're already setting it up for failure. But if I go in with a, an air of curiosity and say, hey, I want to ask you about something you said yesterday. I'm not quite sure how to take it. And it kind of is not sitting well with me. I'm going in with this air of curiosity and invitation, which is going to not create the level of defensiveness that it will get if I go in saying, I want to talk to you. One is percussive. The other one is much more inquisitive. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I get it. It's a total difference in how you it is the conflict. But then encourage somebody about how to garner the courage. Because if you're talking about where, you know, our tribe of origin, where, you know, whether the skills we learn to face into conflict or to move away from it, then let's just say you've moved away from conflict your whole life. Mm-hmm. How do you get the courage to even knock on the door and say, I just wanted to talk to you about something. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, first of all, you take a course of Sue Wozni. That will help. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that we do to ourselves is we, we have inner dialogue. We call it self-talk. So research shows that we, we think at about 1,500 words per minute. We speak at about 125. So we rehearse stuff in our heads really fast, very often. And if you actually turn up the volume inside your head, you'll notice that there's certain themes of self-talk that are going on that are based loosely in fight or flight, which is our hardwired reaction to conflict and stress and, and, and challenge. So if I'm in kind of fight mode, I have a bone to pick with you, then I'm probably into self-righteous. How dare he? Who does he think he is speaking to me like that? Oh, he's not going to get away with this. So that winds me up in anger. I can also go into judgmental or blaming self-talk where I'm calling somebody a name. What an idiot, stupid, jerk, moron, or worse. And <laughs> I don't use those. I yeah, go worse. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> and so what we're doing when we're doing that is we're actually winding ourselves up. We're, we're actually signaling our bodies to go into fight or flight. So nobody makes you mad. You actually make yourself mad by how you communicate internally with yourself. Now, if I'm in kind of flight mode, and somebody's coming at me like, you know, I got a bone to pick with you, then I probably go into frightened child, which is, oh my goodness, I didn't expect this. This is terrible. Oh, this is a disaster. I'm doomed. Get me out of here. Or I go into fix it self-talk. Maybe if I give him this, he'll go away and leave me alone. And so both of those either wind you up in anxiety or anger, and that's a negative headspace. You, you can't resolve issues if you're in that space. There's a couple of others too. There's, there's the victim martyr, the old poor me, where you throw a pity party, invite yourself to it. And, uh, you know, and others, a lot of those. (laughs) Oh, why does this always happen to me? I'm always the one getting dumped on. And you just kind of just feel so. I was just, I was just sitting here doing nothing, minding my business and look what what happens. And you know what? Everybody dumps on me. My family dumps on me. My friends dump on me and I come to work, get the same treatment. Yeah. So there's a lot of power in being the victim. 
And then the other one is self-doubt, where you really second-guess yourself. Oh, gosh, I didn't handle that very well. Maybe I'm not very good at this. Maybe I shouldn't be working in a people field. Maybe rocks or sticks or something would be better for me. You know, <laughs> so, and we beat ourselves up. So we have to, art again, artificially at first, we have to substitute different self-talk. So when you say, sorry to interrupt, but when you say artificially, you're meaning fake? Deliberately. Deliberately fake. Well, deliberately, (laughs) you have to deliberately shift your self-talk. So it's actually, you have to do what is counterintuitive. You have to do the opposite of what you feel like doing. So it is trained learning. It's learnable skills, but it does take self-awareness and it does take effort on your part. So if I'm, you know, I'm going to rip your face off, then I have to give myself some calming self-talk. And so it sounds something like, Sue, back off, shut up and listen, stay curious, use your skills, keep breathing one step at a time. And so I'm coaching myself internally inside my head the same time we're having a conversation and I'm calming myself down and keeping myself in the zone. The part of our brain that is our, our rational cognitive sort of processing part of our brain is the, is the prefrontal cortex. That's the executive functioning part of our brain. I want to stay in having that in the driver's seat, not letting my amygdala, which is the emotional gatekeeper in our brain, hijack me and enact the fight or flight response. Fight or flight is just that. It's good for fight or flight. It's not good for having a difficult discussion. So I want to stay in that executive functioning part of my brain. And how I do that is with my self-talk, making sure that I'm taking good oxygen exchange, good breathing. And, you know, if I'm in sort of like, oh my gosh, kind of self-talk, then I have to give myself supportive self-talk. It's okay, Sue. It's only anger. You have skills. You can deal with this. Big shoulders. Hang in there one step at a time. Use your skills. And honestly, I've been doing this for almost 25 years, and my self-talk comes with me everywhere I go because I never know when a client is going to suddenly go ballistic, not necessarily at me, but around me. And I have to be ready to respond in an instant. So I'm really, really aware of my self-talk and how I use it. It's one of my key skills. Wow. I, um, I like that. I have not, I'm just thinking like, as you're talking to me, I'm thinking, do I do that? We all do it. We just don't, we're not aware of it. I'm not aware of it. I, I, I can think of situations where I've, you know, how these, you know, I can remember that I've said something to myself, but, but it's now that you say it, I can bring that in mm-hmm. and begin to live out of that and not think I'm crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're not crazy if you're talking to yourself. Okay. Okay. Not so crazy. then what? Then what do we do? Well, then, I mean, there's, there's key communication skills that I teach in the workshops that I do around, you know, active listening. So, you know, wh- one of the skills that I find is really useful, particularly to calm a situation down, is what, the skill we call acknowledging. And that's basically demonstrating empathy. You're standing in the other person's shoes saying, you know, I get what's going on for you. And you're able to articulate that back to them. So it sounds like you're having a really tough day today, Lori. You sound really frustrated. And that actually calms people down. It, it, it's, you can't stay mad if somebody is actively diffusing you through acknowledging. And basically, I can take somebody who's really, really irate and upset and calm them down somewhere between 30 seconds and three minutes just by using acknowledgement. So my information does not get on the table at this point. It's totally about them. 
And all I do is recognize what's going on. I say back what I'm hearing them say. It's a skill called paraphrasing. And when people feel heard, listened to, and understood, they calm down and they're prepared to move forward. So that's the first thing I do is make sure that both of us are in the zone so we can have a conversation. If we're both emotionally escalated, we are not in a place to have a good conversation. It's probably just going to be deterioration and two wrongs will not make a right. So the first thing I got to do is self-manage me and then help the other person walk back down. Now, let's just say, uh, pick up on what you just said there. If you're triggered and you're, and you, you're both coming into a conflict, you're an executive, you've got you know, someone on your team collaborating, but it, it falls apart. The wheels fall right off. Mm-hmm. You're saying that really from your family of origin, from the base where you grew up, that is what and why you were operating in that way at this point in A your life. A large part of it is. Yeah. And then we have, there, there's, um, you know, we, in, in your notes that you sent me, you talked about misperceptions and boy, that is just ugh, a ton of the work that I do comes from misperceptions. There's a, a psychological term called the fundamental attribution error. We call FAE. And, it, and, and FAE is when you experience something either verbally or, or, or physically. So something's said or something's done. And we all have perceptual filters. So we all view the world through our own system of filters. So filters come from your family of origin, like how you learn to do conflict and have difficult situations, your religious upbringing, your ethnicity and cultural background, your life experience, job experience, educational experience, all of the things that make you particular to be you and how you orient yourself to the world and how you apply meaning and importance to the stimuli that comes at you through your five senses. So an FAE works like this. Something happens, so it's public. If I say something to you, the listeners can hear us, they can see us, so it's public. You don't know why I'm saying what I'm saying to you, because my intent is private. And conversely, the effect on you is private, unless we choose to share it verbally. So what happens is, is if you hear something from me that you experience as being negative or hurtful, you will automatically assume that's what I intended. And I hear this all the time when I go into workplaces to do mediations and pre-session interviews. I know he's out to get my job. He's deliberately undermining me in front of the team. I know he's out to get me. And when I say, how do you know? Well, I can tell. It's like, wow, clairvoyance. That's awesome. (laughs) Right. And how can you tell? Well, Well, it's through the filters. Because when I looked at him, he didn't smile at me. Yeah. And so he was mad at me. Uh, That email he sent had just a really dull tone to it. There was no exclamation marks. Yeah. Or there wasn't any salutation. He just went right into the body. So clearly he's mad at me. And didn't sign it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right? And and then that tone, and then that text message was even worse. Mm -hmm. And then when I called him to clarify about this project, he said, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You go ahead and do it. Yeah. Bye. Oh my God. And that just reinforced. (laughs) He doesn't like me. Yeah, okay. it's just distracted and busy, but I don't know. So here's what I tell people. Don't act like you know. Act like you don't know. Check stuff out because nine times out of 10, I guarantee you, you will be wrong. Okay, so now we are the, we are the CEO. We are the executive. Okay. You're the CEO and executive. Now, now give an example of how you do exactly that with an employee or a team member. 
Okay. So, Lori, yesterday um, I asked you if you had uh, how you were coming along on that report, and I got a very short answer with no eye contact. And I guess uh, initially I took it as that you were being dismissive, but I, I don't want to make that assumption. So I just want to check out and see what was going on for you yesterday, because that's not a usual response I get from you. And invite you to make your intent public. Ah. And then you'll say, well, Sue, I was just, I had a thousand things on the go and I just, I didn't want to break my concentration. And I'm sorry if I sounded short. I just, I just didn't really want to break out of what I was doing. So now the memory's reframed for me. And, and when you're answering him or her, Mm -hmm. it is okay to explain yourself, Mm -hmm. but not explain away. Like, when is there a boundary of, okay, so I woke up this morning and my kids, and then I forgot my shoes and I had to go back and I was too stressful. So that when you talk to me, then I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. There's that. That's oversharing. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> and a lot of people are pretty good at that. So you can say, okay, so the morning was pretty rough. I would just, I would just take it and sort of generalize and, and just sort of, you know, empathize with you and say, sounds like your morning was pretty rough. And that explains why you were having difficulty sort of being present in the moment and fair enough um so let me know when you're you're able to give me 100 percent of your attention and we can have that conversation all right now let's flip it so now uh the employee you're the employee and you're going to your boss your executive your team member that's in charge okay so laurie i you know boss laurie yeah um I sent you the the email that you requested some of the information and the, the response I got back, I, I'm having trouble sort of deciphering what it means. There was some words in there that felt like they were critical. And I'm not sure if that's what you were intending is for me to get some feedback or if you were you were critiquing my work. So I guess I I really love it if you could clarify for me. I was critiquing your work. Okay. That's that's great, Lori. And you know what? Lori, next time, I guess what would be more helpful for me is if you, we could have that conversation in person rather than over an email, because it's really hard to read into an email what's actually being intended. Well, I don't have a lot of time to do that. I, I know you're really busy. I, I get that. And, and I don't want to take up more of your time than necessary. I just would really appreciate having a little bit more direct communication from you. See, because some bosses would say, well, I don't want to babysit you. I'm not your babysitter. Yeah, and I don't want you to babysit me. I'm a grown woman, and I. Don't so what you're me. saying is, you're not offend. You're not offended. Mm-hmm. You're not leading Curious. with. So whatever they're, whatever they're saying to you is not to move you to victim or move you to like feeling bad about yourself. You're just all you're imploring is to say, listen, get to the bottom of the why. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, people like to play emotional poker. And they'll, they'll hold their cards up and go, oh, I, I, I see you uh, and I raise you a guilt card. <laughs> and it's up to you whether or not you pick up that card off the table. If it's mine to pick up, I will. I'll say, yes, I can own that. But if it's not mine, I'm not going to pick it up until I know it's mine. And so I, you know, I try to really, really hard to depersonalize and say, you know, he's not yelling at me. He's yelling for himself. And I don't have to take the bait and, and get all upset about this. I can just listen and, and hear them out. And a lot of times the conflict is not about what they're talking about. That's usually a symptom of what the deeper conflict is. Um, you know, I had a guy recently who was in a pre-session mediation interview and I said, so what are the challenges working with, with Randy? And he said, 
Well, Randy took my stapler off my desk again without asking. And, you know, my inside voice is going, man, you need a hobby. <laughs> but outwardly, I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the straw that broke it for him. There were several other things that were going on that Randy had done where the, the basis of the, the fight was that Randy was not being considerate of others in the office and was not being respectful of boundaries. And so that was what the mediation was about, was around, was around boundaries. It wasn't about stapler. The stapler was just a toss-off. So a lot of times when people come to me with it, with an issue, um, you know, they have some sort of flat assertion, I want him fired in a harassment case. And so I don't go, well, you know what, that's above my pay grade, I can't really do that, because that's not going to be useful. But I say fired, wow, that's a pretty strong statement. If he wasn't here, what would change for you? And I get them talking about what they're looking for. And that's what we want to problem solve off of, not whether or not that guy can get fired. I see that as an invitation to my conversation with them, not as the, the thing we're going to discuss. And very, very seldom is the presenting issue what the issue is. It's often just a lead in to what really is going on. It's kind of like an iceberg. You see the tip, but really the, the heart of the matter is underneath the water. The well, water and then this there. leads us to company and culture because, yeah. you know, you've ever walked in an, in an office place and people will warn you, the bu- don't talk to her. Mm -hmm. Don't talk to him. (laughs) You better have a very, very, very good reason to to go there. Yeah. So we, right. And it strikes fear in the core of your heart. You're just like, but but I'm getting paid X amount of dollars to, to do this job. How come I can't, what is it with them that they can't, they're not approachable or, um, or that this is the culture that they're creating? Like, how is that possible? Yeah. Well, I'll give you a story. I, I worked for a family service organization years ago. I was a middle manager, program coordinator, and I'd been there a couple of months, and it was a year end, and because our funding came from the government, we had to write this lengthy report showing how we spent the money. I had never done a report like this in my life before. So I'm heading up to the executive assistant's office who does all of the confidential data entry and, and you know, finalizes the report so they're in the right format. So I'm walking up to her office and I hear this, Sue, Sue, Sue. And I look around and the receptionist panicked look on her face and she says, come here, come here, come here. So I go over to her desk and I said, are you okay? She says, don't go in there. Don't, don't go in Nancy's office. I said, well, she's here. And she says, she says, don't you know the signals? I said, um, no, I guess I don't. <laughs> I found out that day Nancy ruled the office with her Venetian blind. She had a glass door with a horizontal Venetian blind on it. And if the blind was pulled up and you could see through the glass, green light, go on in. If the blind was down and turned slightly upward, that was caution. And if it was screwed down tight, don't go in even if the building's on fire. Well, of course, me, I have to test this theory. <laughs> so I knock on the door. I get a grunt. I open the door and say, hi, Nancy, I've got this stuff here. And she starts to raise her voice at me. She starts to yell. And I'm like, wow, you're having a rough day. What is going on for you? I've got not only your work to do, I've got the other coordinators. I've got the managers and it's so busy and I'm so stressed out. And I said, whoa, you're, this is a really tough time of year for you. And I just acknowledged her a few times. Heard her out a little bit and I said, you know what, Nancy, I'm new. I'm going to make mistakes and I really hope that you can help me correct them. One thing that does not work for me is being yelled at. 
I do not work well when I'm yelled at and I, I just can't do this. And she burst into tears, apologized profusely, and went on about how stressed out she was. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try real hard not to add to your stress. In return, I'd like to have conversations, not yelling matches. I worked there seven years, and she was there for five before she left. And she never once yelled at me again. And people, even the managers who were her bosses, came to me and said, why doesn't she pick on you? Why doesn't she yell at you? I said, well, because I asked her not to. And they were all tippy-toeing around on eggshells with her. Her staff, who were the clerical staff, refused to attend a meeting alone with her. So guess who got to go in? Me. It wasn't my job, but I went in as her support person. And I would be on my phone. I only had a window. I didn't have a glass door. And I would see her back and forth circling like a shark outside my door because she'd had a run-in with somebody and needed to be talked off the ledge. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was just insane because so many people were so afraid of her. And I just said, please don't yell at me. And she didn't. So, you know. Well, you, you've reinforced the point that you teach people how to treat you. Oh, yes. And, and, and Nancy was teaching people how to treat her. And she was getting rewarded. And she was getting rewarded for that. And you were teaching people how to treat you and you were being rewarded for that. Yeah. Yeah. Set healthy boundaries. But you, you. You know, we, we look at this and we go, there's healthy and there's destructive conflict. Oh, yeah. And, and the way she was acting was destructive. Mm-hmm. It was fearful. It was, it was all of that. But the way that you were bringing into that same, that same company, that same organization, you were bringing in a healthy balance to what was quite destructive conflict or or a way of being, mm-hmm. you know, so perhaps somebody doesn't have that skill set. Maybe they're 17, maybe they're 17 and they're going into this job and they feel like this. Could you give them a tip about how to baby step in to that level of, of uh, power, empowerment? Yeah, um, I mean, there's all kinds of power differentials. There's there's positional power. There's you know gender power. There's age power. There's you know all of these things, and it is tough. I was just working with a an, a college yesterday, and one of the things we were talking about were the students and how did the students tell the instructors that they're being mistreated? They're they're being treated disrespectfully, and you know the biggest fear the students have is well, if I speak up and are they going to fail me in this class that I desperately need for my career? And so we talked about how to bully-proof the, the students and to say, you know, it, it's okay to be respectfully asking for a difference in opinion. One of the things I tell people is don't have the who they are conversation. Have the what they're doing conversation. So behavior Versus rather behavior. than personality, you said? Because we don't change our personalities greatly over time. Research shows that we're hardwired generally, for the most part, by age nine in terms of our personalities, our values, our our general personality. So the Sue that went to bed last night, same one got up this morning, did not change overnight. What we can change and do change are our behaviors. If you've ever gone on a diet or you've started an exercise program or taken up a new hobby, that's behavioral change. So when I go into workplaces and the HR manager says, oh, yeah, the two we need you to work with, it's a personality clash. We don't know that you're going to get anywhere. I go, okay, yeah, I am. I'm going to get somewhere because I'm not going to change who they are, but I'm sure it's going to help them change what they're doing. 
Right. So, so you're saying something like, um, we need you to, so if, if somebody's working and they're not making eye contact, mm-hmm. you're not saying you're avoiding people when you're at the cash register. That's your judgment about it. That's yeah. a judgment. You're saying, you know, we need you to make more eye contact with people. Yeah. I'm, I'm noticing that you're not looking at the customers as you're serving them. Now, here's a tool that I absolutely love, and it's the, just a wonderful thing to, to draw attention to these things. It's called the DEAR tool, D-E-A-R. It's an acronym that, acronym that stands for Describe the Behavior. So you want to describe it neutrally, objectively, and specifically. So what the exact behavior is, I notice you're not looking at customers when you're serving them, as opposed to you're avoiding eye contact. Right. So it's very, very concrete and neutral. And then the E is explain the impacts. Um, I noticed that people look uncomfortable or they're not sure what to say or do to you, with you. And what causes people to shift very often is that impact. We're often not aware of the impact of our behavior on others. We assume that, well, it's not bothering anybody, but maybe it is. And then the A is ask them about it. Ask them for their perspective. So what stops you from making eye contact with folks as you're serving them? Hear them out. And then the R is request for the future. You know, it'd be really great if you could make some attempts to try and look them in the eye and maybe give them a bit of a smile to let them know that they're, they're, their business is welcome here. Wow. So it's a really powerful tool. Anybody can do it. I teach this to all ages, all walks of life, all positions in the organization because it's assertive and respectful. I love that. That deer tool, I got it. Good. Now back up and let's go back to the student mm-hmm. who is worried about being failed. Mm-hmm. Give them tools. What, what tools did you offer uh, yesterday at the workshop? Okay, so there was one where um, a, a student had come to the dean concerned that, you know, the, the, teach, the instructor seemed to be condescending and a bit sarcastic towards this particular student when she offered whatever in the classroom. So my advice to her was to say to the student, okay, so give quotes. When you talk to the instructor, say, you know, instructor, can I talk to you about something that happened in class yesterday? permission granted. Okay. Um, yesterday when I offered up the explanation for X, your response to me was, and then a direct quote said very neutrally, avoid mimicking what you perceive the other person's tone to be. Right. Like, and so then you said, (laughs) you said, Oh, that's a stupid thing to do. You said, and, and that, that my idea was stupid. Right. Just like you're just right there. Like like you're a newscaster reading the news and then say, you know, I, what caused you to say that? Because it, it didn't feel very comfortable in front of my class and express that impact. I wasn't comfortable. Invite the instructor to say something. Now, often when you hear back what you said and realize, oh, geez, did I really say that? Oh, my goodness. They're generally falling all over themselves to apologize and say, oh, I did you know, that was wrong. I embarrassed you and I didn't mean to. And you know what? It's not going to happen again. And usually that's enough to kind of deal with it. If you're dealing with someone who's got some empathy, who's got some emotional intelligence. Now, I would say with the, I do a lot of harassment investigation, complaint investigations. So out of the response I deal with, I would guess that probably 80% of the respondents are what I would call unskilled and unaware. 
They just don't get how they're coming across to other people or that their comments are hurtful, their jokes are not funny. And when it's brought to their attention, they feel bad, they want to apologize, and they change. Now, about 15% of the rest of them are, I would say, what I call chronic bullies. They know what they're doing. It's working for them. They get rewarded for bad behavior, and they'll stop under threat of discipline. You keep doing this, you're going to end up with a, a letter on your file. You could possibly be suspended or even terminated. Then there's a sliver of the population that I, I very seldom deal with, thank goodness, and I would call them the hardcore bullies. They are sociopathic. They have no empathy. They don't care. They take great pleasure in people's pain, and those are the ones you invite to leave the organization because they will not change. So I assume that you're an 80 percenter, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're unaware that what you're doing is causing angst. And I'm going to bring it to your attention using the DEER tool and see what you do with it. Most times it'll be, wow, I didn't realize. And you know what? I was, I was trying to be flippant and I realized I hurt your feelings. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be more mindful. And, you know, um, and I, you know, the dean often catches these kind of uh, complaints. And I say, well, one of the things you need to do is, is assure the student that academically they are not going to fail if they are meeting the, the class requirements. So take away that fear because it's an irrational fear and say you have a right to be treated with respect in the, in the classroom. You have a responsibility to be respectful in the classroom. And so we balance the rights and responsibilities of both parties to make it right. And if, they can, if the student says, well, I don't think I can have that conversation, then offer them an opportunity to have a third party assist. Like somebody like me comes in and, and I, I assist the conversation that they can't have by themselves. And so I manage the emotional climate. I make sure it stays productive and moving forward and safe for both parties to have that conversation. And I would say... 99.9% .9 of the time, there's an agreement for them to move forward and the problem is resolved. You know, once in a while, there's one that just, you know, there's an ulterior motive or what have you is going on. But for the most part, people are in such pain, they just want to get out of it. They just don't have a pathway. Well, and what you're saying at the very beginning, that, that our family of origin, it shapes how we see the world. And a lot of us spend time unwinding from that. Yeah, <laughs> Right? Uh, yeah, therapy. But there's also, you know, parts of it that are amazing for people that you can take in and, and it, it, it's awesome the way you were, you way your beliefs were put in motion and all of those things that you can embrace. And then there's these things that we have to go, I, it, it, I just need to tweak it. Yeah. Because perhaps you, you, your perception was not maybe accurate when you were four. Mm -hmm. or five, or whatever, um, because perception is not always reality, and it isn't back then, and it might not be now, mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing. But then when you're coming to somebody, that instructor is their own things, their own mm -hmm. buttons that get pushed, yep. their own fears. They're and in a leadership position, and, and now their reaction and how they see uh, conflict is now stepping forward. Well, and it goes back to those filters as well. They may perceive that that student is challenging them unnecessarily in front of the class. So it's like, right. how dare you challenge my authority and my wisdom and my experience? And so, again, it's unpacking that stuff. Those assumptions are just deadly. And so many people operate from that, that school of assumption. And really, when you act like you don't know for both parties, it's just, it's totally different. 
Well, and you're, and it, we talked about giving some examples of misunderstanding the facts and, and not reading the situation correctly. You know, why would somebody be uh, sitting in a classroom and, you know, try to rip your authority away? Maybe they just think differently and they're, they're not, you know, maybe they're not delivering it in the right way. But when you are responsible for some knowledge, when you're giving people information, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're, you know, teaching people how to do something on a construction site or, you know, in any kind of field, there's going to be questions and someone might ask a question in a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's not that someone's trying to take the authority or steal it or, you know, uh, they don't believe you. It's just that their brain might be working from a dev- another angle. Yeah. And, and the goal is don't take it personally. It's just information. People's perceptions are their reality. And emotions are messengers. They tell us that there's something going on. And so we have to honor that it's not right or wrong. It's just different. And if we can kind of keep that paradigm of, you know, you think differently than I do, or you see it differently than I do, that's okay. doesn't mean one of us is wrong. It just means we come at it from different angles. We're different people. And we can work despite our differences together. What was what must be built as a skill set with this particular, um, with looking at the facts and and the situation? How do we build a skill set to drive uh, something different there? Well, it's it's definitely learned overlay for pretty much all of us. Very few people sort of come by this innately. Um, the the biggest message I give to people is stay curious. Stay curious. Act like you don't know. Because if I'm curious, I'm open. If I'm curious, I don't trigger. If I'm, if I'm definite and I'm closed, I'm not open to new information. I'm not open to your point of view. And I'm going to set up a power struggle really quickly. I get a lot of people who, you know, they think that if somebody has a different opinion than them, they have to sell them on their point of view. And selling doesn't work. Selling sets up a power struggle and people dig their heels in even farther. The other thing I tell people is to delete the word but from your vocabulary. But is a verbal eraser. Basically, it says, forget anything I said before this. Now I'm going to tell you what I really think. So I hear people say, I don't mean to be critical, but, well, you're going to be. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're a nice person, but... So I tell people just put a period, take a little breath, start your sentence. I want to do a perspective comparison where I'm acknowledging your point of view and I'm putting mine right beside without negating yours. A cons- uh, uh, perspective comparison. Huh. So, so Lori, you see it this way and I see it this way. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying it's just different. I find I can change people's minds by doing that perspective comparison um, without ever making that person wrong. Active listening encourages reflection on the other part. So as I, I acknowledge what you're saying and I ask you questions about it, I get you to think a little deeper and a little broader. And at some point, you know, I say, well, if, if we do it that way, what do you think will happen over here? And I see you looking and thinking and going, oh, 
oh, I, yeah, you're right. I didn't consider that. Maybe that won't work. And all of a sudden you shifted without me ever telling you you're wrong, just by staying curious about your point of view. So perspective comparison about the boss that comes in and takes the stapler off the desk, Mm -hmm. right? So if that person is sitting at their desk and that stapler, they use, they touch that stapler 50 times a day. They're always working with it somehow, right? Mm -hmm. And the boss takes it and goes and doesn't think about it and then just leaves it on her desk or Mm -hmm. his desk. That person has to either get up and go get it, which they probably won't do. Maybe they got to go and find another one. So their perspective is, you keep losing. (laughs) Not only do you touch my stapler, you keep losing it. And I, (laughs) so give us a, a perspective comparison about an interaction like that. Oh my goodness, that, that's such a, that's a little, I'd probably just go buy my own stapler and hide it. Right, but, but, but the assumption that they're losing it or the assumption that they don't uh, value, that that's not true, is yeah. what, from what you're saying. It's not that they don't value it. They, they're probably just not aware that they're it, not aware. Problem, right. So it's like, you know, boss, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been running around looking for my stapler. I, I notice it's, hey, it's on your desk. And I've come in here a few times and kind of swiped it back. And I, I guess I'm just wondering how it, how it ends up off my desk onto yours and see what they have to say. Well, you know, I just passed by I needed a stapler and grabbed yours. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, what I, I need to let you know is that it ends up taking a few minutes every time I have to go find one. And that's minutes I'm not spending working at my desk. And, and some people might look at that like, like as we're having this conversation in my head, I'm laughing because mm-hmm. I am thinking this is a stapler. I know. Yeah. <laughs> right? So maybe it's not the ditch to die in. <laughs> but that person is not thinking that way. Mm-hmm. Because it's really, really important, but this is the crux of conflict mm-hmm. in the work environment. You are not, you know, married to these people, but there is an element of provision. There's an element of community. There's an element, there's all sorts of layers mm-hmm. and it becomes the stapler, Right. Yeah. Well, and then I would take that and I would unpack it from the stapler, which is trivial at best. It is. And go to what's the deeper issue here. Well, the deeper issue is that people are not respecting personal space boundaries. So uh, that's what I would be going forward on, not the stapler, because that would just, you know, like, geez, Sue, get busy. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We we might find someone else that doesn't care about staplers. Exactly. But I might say, you know, that I, I noticed that you come into my space, you, um, you, you will look through my files without my giving permission. Um, you know, you have a right to do that as my supervisor. I come back and I realize things have been moved around. It takes me a while to get resorted again. And it's very frustrating and it's, it's distracting for me. And I, I guess I need to understand what's going on when you're doing that. What do you, what's, your, what's your intention? Perspective comparison um, for the student mm-hmm. with the teacher okay. or with the instructor. So, so I'm hearing t- instructor that, you know, when, when you're, commenting on my comments, you're intending to, um, to correct my point of view or to give me additional information. 
what I hear when you do that is criticism and ridicule. Hmm. That's then, vulnerable though. It is. But boy, I tell you, it's powerful. Because then, and what, now here's another tool I use that people don't use very often, but it's incredibly powerful and vastly underutilized, is the tool of silence. So you say, you know what, what I hear in that is criticism and ridicule, and then stop talking and let it hang. That's when people kind of take it and go, oh gosh, I made you feel that way. That wasn't what I was trying to do. Oh my goodness. And that's when people shift is when they've got that little bit of time. It'll feel like an eternity the first time you do it, but it's really a second, a second and a half. And they will jump to fill the silence. I guarantee you saying, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe you felt that way. That's not what I was trying to do. And I feel terrible. And all of a sudden they're tripping over themselves to, to apologize and to change it. But you have to give that time. I find when people cheapen their, their message is they say, I felt ridiculed and, and I was embarrassed. And then, and then I went away and, I, and they keep talking and they've lost that teachable moment. Mm-hmm. And you need to just allow it to kind of just hang there. Ah, so you just said something that I think is really interesting. You said a teachable moment. And that is very powerful for a student to be able to know that this is a teachable moment. If you if you are able to really be the witness of watching yourself, witness yourself, talk to yourself in your head, going, pull back, pull back, like you said, hold on, just deep breathe. Okay, now active. Here we go. And you're saying what you're saying, and then you hold it. You get the opportunity to teach people how to treat you. You Mm -hmm. also get the opportunity to allow for someone to then move into a place of reflection on their action and their behavior. Absolutely. This is very, very powerful. And for someone who's a, who's a clerk or running cash and they're working in the service industry, it's the same thing. The perspective comparison of instead of focusing on, like you said, the, the, not the personality, the behavior and how that makes uh, and turns the conversation, it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, I had a situation where I had to give feedback to a clerical supervisor who was universally described by the team as rude, crude, and really inappropriate in the workplace. And it was, it was a workplace assessment. It wasn't a harassment investigation, although it probably could have been had somebody come forward. So I was, um, some of the things that she was guilty of were um, if she could, you know, if she said something and she could make it into a sexual innuendo, she did. Everything was sort of sexually oriented for her. Um, she was, she actually, she had a team building activity that just, I've never heard this before, blew my mind. She thought she would have her team have a building activity by going around the table and discuss or disclosing how and when they lost their virginity, which I was just like, yeah, that was the look on my face. (laughs) And so in the workplace, this is in the workplace. Yes. She had a, a, a staff person who was phobically afraid of cats, like in therapy about it. And she thought it was funny to sneak up behind this person and meow like a cat to watch that person jump and then laugh about it. I mean, she was really inappropriate. So I'm giving her feedback and I'm using the deer tool. So I bring her in and I say, okay, one of the things I'm hearing is that you tend to use a lot of humor in the workplace. Like she would tell jokes that would make a longshoreman blush. So she um, said, yeah, okay. So I said, well, what I'm hearing, so I disclose impact. 
I'm hearing that your humor isn't necessarily amusing. It's more abusing and it causes people to feel really uncomfortable. And then I stopped talking and she stared at me for a bit. She kind of gave me the stink eye and then she made an excuse. Well, well, you got to have fun in the workplace. And that's often what you get is you get an excuse or you get some sort of justification. So I always acknowledge what I hear first. Okay, you're right. Humor is a great tool. It really helps with stress and it kind of cuts through tension. What I'm hearing is that your brand of humor actually creates tension to the point where somebody was crying in the bathroom last Thursday. And I stopped talking again. Let silence hang. She's staring at me again. She says, well, uh, um, uh, I, I got a big mouth. Gets me in trouble. So again, I acknowledged Yeah, I get the sense you're a real straight shooter. You call it like you see it. And what I'm hearing is that sometimes your honesty becomes really difficult and and unharmful. And we went back and forth, I don't know, maybe one or two more times after that. And she finally said, fine, what do I have to do? I was like, oh, boy, have I got ideas for you. (laughs) And you you have to persist one more than they do. But what if if she's saying... Fine. What do I have to do just to get through it? And it's not internalized. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's not our job, is it? That'll come out in the wash, right? We'll know if she's determined or not. And she did take it to heart because she realized that the next step was discipline. And so she did start to kind of rein it in. And Would uh, you say that part of, for, for, I mean, what you do in the workplace is kind of reflective of how you are in your life? <laughs> You could ask my family about that. <laughs> right. How do you feel about that? <laughs> dear, dear. <laughs> well, people often in classrooms, they say, boy, I really pity your husband. D-E-A-R. Tools on it. Exactly. Yes. But it is true. I do think. That how you present and it would be, you're treating people in a different way. Um, So cycling patterns that, you know, that push people's buttons that you fall into, that you do, you have to learn how to diffuse them before the train goes off the tracks. What, how do you preemptively um, do something? How do you preemptively have the conversation? If you can see it going down the line. Um, then stop, breathe. Uh, if you need to, take a break. If, you know, if, it, if things are escalating and you're not able to diffuse it, then maybe a timeout is a good idea. I mean, it's, it's postponement and it's, it's a strategic use of avoidance, which is sometimes a really good tool. Come back at it later, maybe the day after. And, you know, I kind of start out with saying, you know, yesterday we, you know, we, we started having this conversation. It kind of escalated to the point where neither one of us were really able to continue. So I'd like to start off on a different foot today. So yesterday, I know I, 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 you know, my voice got more sharp and my tone got sharp and, and I, I don't want to have that conversation again today. So I'm going to try really hard to just, you know, be open and listen and hear what you have to say. You know, anytime I get resistance from the other person that tells me that they're going into an emotional place of, you know, resistance is an unmet need. So people are digging their heels in. So I stop and I get curious again. And I start to listen as opposed to try and push my agenda. I know I can't push my agenda because they're not open to hearing it. So I back off and I say, okay, you're looking really frustrated. What's frustrating you right now? 
and I get them talking again, I then de-escalate them to the point where now they can hear me again. There's no point in going on when the person, you can tell the person's not open to hearing you. So the best way to do that is to shift back into a listening mode, shift back into empathizing. And when people, again, feel heard, listened to, and understood, when you're not fighting them, the fight goes out of them. Yes, that's true. What do you do? So that boss who is having, trying to have this conversation, are you giving people permission in leadership roles to have unresolved uh, conversations that are really important to your the workflow and all that, but to say, if you can't solve it, then step back, go sleep or do what you need to do, come back the next day and re-engage. Yeah. Or, yes. you know, if you're having that conversation in the morning to say, you know what, um, let's take a break for lunch. Let's reconvene at 1.30 and see if we can work this through. You know, I don't want to leave it unresolved if it's got a negative impact to the workplace or to the workflow. It has to be resolved. And so I need to go back and kind of check my own stuff and say, okay, how am I contributing to this not working and what can I do differently? So maybe it's that I'm pushing my agenda too much or I'm being too critical for the other person or I'm just with my position and my personality, I'm just too scary. So how do I back off? Maybe we don't have the meeting in my office as the CEO um, because it's like being called to the principal's office. Right, it is, yeah. So maybe yeah. we go to their office or we go to a boardroom that's private and neutral. So I try to power balance wherever I can. Well, that's um, good, power ba- balancing. I like that. Huge. When you have more power, find ways to share your power. When you have less power, find ways to equalize the power. And so, you know, and always be the second person to talk. Stephen Covey wrote the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Habit number five is a really good tool. Listen first, I'm paraphrasing, listen first to understand before you speak to be understood. Hmm. That's what you want to do in conflict is is listen first. Because you know what? I might find out stuff about you that I didn't know before. I might find out new information that causes me to shift before I open my mouth. So I may have some assumptions that you clarify for me. Plus, when you feel heard, you're far more likely to be willing to listen to me. So I'm earning myself a hearing by doing that. And I'm also calming you down. And when, when people are actively listened to, it becomes a conversation rather than a power struggle. If it's, I see your point, but, yes, but. Well, that's not a conversation. We're listening for ammunition at that point. Well, we're beginning with the end. Yes. In mind. Yeah. That's exactly what you're describing right now is if the, you need workflow, you want to get that good grade, you want to move up in your job um, in the service industry. So begin with the end in mind. And this is not just for the person that's doing the job review, the person that's in leadership. This is also for the, the person that is working in and contributing to the betterment of this business. It is being able to say, as you're going into review, what is my end goal here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call that keeping my eye on the higher goal. What is my higher goal? And, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing coaching with people who are, say, um, you know, found to be violating the respectful workplace policy, they come for coaching to, for behavioral change. So my goal is how do I affect behavioral change? And criticizing them and telling them what they did wrong and pointing out that in the report it says they harassed three people is not going to be helpful. But if I listen to their story, and very often their story, because they know they kind of feel sent to be fixed, 
And so I hear, oh, this was flawed and the investigator was biased and people lied and I'm not the guy who should be here. The other guy should be, you know, it doesn't help for me to be logical and say, well, I did read the report and, you know, you did actually uh, violate, you know, several people's rights. That's not going to set up a good coaching relationship. So instead what I do is I say, okay, so you think you got a bit of a raw deal here and you're not sure that the, that the investigation was fair. And from your perspective, you're not even sure that you're the right one to be here. And I don't agree with them. I just acknowledge what I'm hearing them say. And I watch the fight water them. Their shoulders soften. Their face softens. Their voice goes down in volume. And there's a point at which I can say to them, and I can kind of tell after experience, I say, okay, fair enough. You don't think you need to be here. Your employer thinks you do. But what's the best use of our time today? Hmm. And I teach them how to suffer fools not to change their behavior. So that guy, he really frustrates the heck out of you. And when you get frustrated, you yell at him and, and you get in trouble. What if we came up with some tools that would allow you to kind of deal with that without getting in trouble? And all of a sudden, I've got this convert who's saying, tell me how, tell me how. So it's, it's, it's bringing people closer to my sphere of influence and control, getting them to, to buy in. And the best way to do that, to build a relationship, is to acknowledge what's going on for them, not to make them wrong to hear them out, to identify what they're looking for, and to help them meet that need. And I've got a new best friend. Ta-da. Yes. <laughs> There's my trade secret right there. That is amazing. And, and how do you um, help somebody or encourage someone who, who is listening and goes, that would be the most embarrassing, embarrassing thing for me? In terms of having to go to coaching? I'm 44 years old and mm -hmm. they've written three things, you know, harassment or whatever. And I'm mortified. Mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed. Now there's this, that you're moving into that uncharted territory where people, you don't know how they're going to predict or uh, you cannot predict how they're going to react when they're embarrassed. So um, is there something that you say or do and what, could you offer to someone who might be thinking that? I normalize it. You know what? We, we all say and do stuff that we think later, why did I go that route? Um, it's, you know, you're not the first person to be here for this kind of a coaching. This is not punitive. This is supportive. This is to give you some tools to help you not get in this situation again. I have people that come to mediation and they're so mortified. It's like, we're adults. Why, oh, why do we have to talk to you? We should be able to deal with this ourselves. And I say, you know what? Sometimes it just gets beyond what you can deal with. And, and I'm here to help you have a conversation that you haven't been able to have yet. And it doesn't mean that you're bad or you're wrong or that you're broken. It just means that, you know, I, I can give you some tools and give you a path to get you through the impasse that you're at. And once you kind of normalize it and make, and make them feel like they're not bad people, they're just people with a struggle, you know. And so it's really preserving the dignity. It's preserving, allowing them to save face, giving, you know, anytime that I can give somebody a graceful out for something, you know, having somebody who comes in and says, oh, it's the first time I've ever heard we had a respectful workplace policy. Nobody's ever told me about this before. And yet I know from HR, they've been in the HR three times and they've actually signed off on it. I could be right. Then here's a, a question we ask ourselves. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Because they're not necessarily the same thing. You can have a fight with your husband, win the argument and be right. And somebody slept on the couch. 
I don't know about your house, but that's not happening in my house. So giving somebody an opportunity to save face. Okay, so you haven't seen this before. This is new to you. Well, how about the two of us go over it together and then we'll both be working from the same document. So then you don't even, you don't even produce the document that says you sign right here. Well, I don't need it. What I need is their cooperation. I need them to be on board. And so if I can allow them to save face and say, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, this is new. I haven't seen this before. You know, in my head, I know they have, but... But that's just grace. That's my higher goal. I want... And and grace is extended. What I like about what you're saying is it, it would be how you would want to be treated. Exactly. And that is the whole crux of what happens, whether it's a stapler on the desk. I just want you to treat me with the courtesy that I treat everyone else. I don't walk across the hall and grab his stapler because you took mine. I want you to respect my space. I want you to respect my space. My stapler, my pens, my, my you know. My chair, my everything. Yeah. My well, workspace. A lot of people operate by the golden rule, right? Treat others as you like to be treated. And everybody thinks, oh, yeah, that's a good rule. It's been around for hundreds and thousands of years. But there's actually a humongous flaw in that rule. Hmm. Okay. Can you spot the flaw? I, I think I do. <laughs> Some people don't mind being treated poorly. Well, I, have- I would move to more um, their, a worthiness. Some people maybe don't believe that they have value. Yes. And that they would think, well, you should hear what I say to myself in my head. Yeah. Well, here's an example. I've got a, a nonprofit uh, society, a senior management team that I'm coaching individually and as a group. One of the senior managers is a very stoic, stern, you know, sort of uh, very officious person. And she went to the CEO and said, I don't need your praise. You don't need to praise me. You just tell me what I'm doing wrong and I'll fix it. So that's her golden rule. That's how she likes to be treated. Well, here's the problem. She has four junior managers beneath her who are withering and dying on the vine because they never get positive feedback. So they hear what they do wrong. They don't hear anything right. So I'm encouraging her to adopt the platinum rule. The platinum rule is treat others as you have learned they wish to be treated. Oh, I like that. So you've got to negotiate relationships. The platinum rule. Yes, that's the one that works in the workplace. Golden rule doesn't work in the workplace. You see that silence there? (laughs) (laughs) You're reflecting. (laughs) Ooh. Yeah, and it's just, it's so important. Now, and, and, and it's within the context of the actual, you know, work experience. I mean, you can't go to your boss and say, you know, I really don't care to come in on time every day. So I'm just going to come in when I want to. Because <laughs> that's how I want to be treated. <laughs> exactly. No, it's not that. You know, yeah. it's, it's about, you know, like, how do you like feedback? Well, some people say, give it to me straight. Shoot from the hip. You know, other people go, whoa, no, that's too much. Um, just maybe give me one or two things and let me go in and think about it. So you have to negotiate those relationships and those conversations with people and not cookie cutter everybody because it doesn't work. So Yeah, because, and that, and that is often the problem when, when um, people are doing job reviews. Yes. Right? Where they're going in and they're going in with the, especially with a big organization or something along those lines where they're like, this is how we want it done. Mm-hmm. And this is what we expect. Then there's not, the, those circles aren't connected, right? It's like, bam, bam, that's how you have to do it. Yeah. And so 
that poor person is just like, well, this, your t- list of 10 things, uh, you haven't, you don't know me. I suffer from depression. I, I have anxiety. Now I can't even function. I want to throw up now. Yeah. Or I have to work in cubicle land, but I have um, ADHD problems or ADD problems and I, I get distracted easily and the noise is just causing me to spin in my chair. So do we leave them sitting in the middle of cubicle land or do we try and find a quiet corner for them or somebody who gets migraines who has to sit under bright lights, but they really would benefit from being in natural light. So can we move them to the window? So let's talk about that for a minute because um, in the workplace, that could be an underlying area of conflict. Oh, it is. Cubicle right? is a huge source of conflict. Because I, I was talking with somebody and, and, and they were reflecting because I was preparing for the show and he was saying, well, there was one time and he said, you know, it's kind of weird, like his circulation um, isn't good. And so he's always cold. And in his office, he was you know, in this plate where it was by the door and then the other guy like the window and he was just always freezing and it reduced his efficiency. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. And so are you saying that at what point in leadership do you talk about those things? Well, hopefully it's an ongoing conversation that you're, you know, you're not just uh, assuming that silence is golden and it's all no news is good news, that you're checking in with people saying, how's it going? And, and, you know, how are you finding your workspace and what can we do to support you more? How is your workspace? How do you like your workspace? Is there anything we can? uh, Okay. You know, one of the things that I have facilitated quite a bit is when people move into a cubicle environment, this open space environment. I had this one group that worked in, in downtown Vancouver in this beautiful heritage building, like, you know, the nine foot solid oak doors with the little glass panel beside, and everybody had their own office. And then they moved from there to a, to a modular office where they had cubicles and all hell broke loose. So there's this one guy who worked there. I have to just grab something. So he liked these kind of pants. Oh, so he would sit in his office and he'd read his emails. I would take that pen. <laughs> but behind, behind his oak door, it was not a big deal. In cubicle land, it was driving everybody bananas. Yeah. So in facilitation, this came out. He had no clue he was doing it. It was totally foreign to him that he was actually doing this. Because it was a self-soothing mechanism for him. And they said, well, we can tell when you get upset because you click really, really fast. <laughs> So, I mean, little things like that, that you wouldn't think would cause conflict, but boy, that was a big deal. But for people, and then we move to like introvert, extrovert, those who want to work on a team, those who don't want to work on a team Mm -hmm. and how this is. And so then it's not just so easy being a CEO. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, manager or supervisor. It is not because, you know, we are it's almost like people are trying to catch up with what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is essential. Making sure that, well, it just feels like it's a lot. It feels like it's a lot. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the times, you know, when I'm going in and I'm working with teams that are struggling, I've done the assessment process. We figured out what are the areas that aren't working. We've develop some recommendations for that. And we generally try to do something like a team charter, which allows for the team to come together and decide how do we want to work together and support each other. And so the team makes it up. 
So it's, it's, it's theirs, they own it, they, they take care of it. And I usually start off with, we have a little tool that we use at the Neutral Zone called Working Styles. And it's a really watered down sort of Myers-Briggs type indicator tool that you can do in, in 10 minutes. Um, and then what we do is we, I, what I like to do is put people in the different areas because there's four quadrants that, you know, task focus versus relationship, sort of introverted versus extroverted. And I put them in their groups that they fall into, that they self-select into with, with this tool. So we've got the analyticals, we've got the drivers, we've got the amiables and the expresses. And I visually put them in four corners of the room so they can see who's where. And then I ask them some questions about, so, you know, what are the characteristics of your particular style? What would you call yourself? Because I don't give them the name at first. And I tell them, I say, look where your leadership sits. Oh, gosh, they're over there. No wonder we butt heads. And it gives them a bit of a tool to go, I see now why you and I sometimes don't see eye to eye. Or sometimes you feel overwhelmed when I'm talking to you because you're more introverted than I am and you need to go in and think about things. So then we start talking about some tools on how do you work with different styles? Hmm. Not wanting everybody to be like you, but how do you mold yourself a little bit more to be more in the middle with them? And that exercise is just dynamite in terms of helping teams just kind of break down some of those barriers that it's not, I'm right, I'm right, you're wrong, or, you know, you're different than me and I can't work with you. It's just like, wow, you've got different gifts than I do. You've got different preferences than I do. And it helps the team to kind of come together to say, you know what, we want to have all different styles on our team because that gives us a well-rounded team. You know, I'm very expressive, as you can probably tell. Um, and so, you know, analytical is not my strength. And so I'm married to a wonderful analytical who um, is very good at planning and, and, you know, financial organization and stuff. And I bless him for that. As if I had to do it, I, would, I could. I would hate it. I mean, it would be like swallowing bleach for me. I know. And, and I'm the social convener in the house. You know, I'm the one who says, let's get some people over. Let's go for dinner with so-and-so. Let's do this. Let's do that. Because it wouldn't occur to him to do that. So you're we, the feeler, right? Yeah. So yeah. you're the feeler. And then, and then for that person who's the analytic, the, the, the strength that steps forward is the analysis. Yes. The logic. The emotion isn't there. They're able to look at something that would have you bawling. (laughs) It's terrible. Just hear it. And they're like, well, I see it this way. And you're, and you're, you look at them like, how? But I always see my partner as the counterbalance to my emotion because I lead him in to the presence of emotion where the analytic is too far forward and he mm-hmm. might go, ah, oh, okay, I, I, yes, I get it. And yeah, then he yeah. falls back into just a little bit of emotion. It's good. And, and again, it's not, it, it's perfectly acceptable. Mm. It isn't wrong. It's not wrong. It's different. Yeah, we have different gifts and different challenges. And so we complement each other that way. Yeah. And so you have to get people in the, in a, on a team to recognize that you, you bring things to the group that maybe others don't. And you have an opportunity to access characteristics of others that, that would be really helpful for you. You know, if you've got a, a, a project team, you want someone who can, you know, do the number crunching and dot the I's and cross the T's. And you want somebody who's the visionary, the dreamer and schemer who can say, let's push the boundaries and think of the box. So yeah. And so it's getting people to recognize that 
it's it's okay to have different styles, different preferences on the team and to see that as being additive as opposed to a detriment. What would you say to people listening now um, as we wrap up and just to encourage them with the conversation that we've had today? Stay curious. Keep that question mark on top of your forehead and go into everything acting like you don't know. Even that in itself will change the dynamic of many of the interactions you have because you will not be reacting. Instead of saying, how dare he? You'll be going, huh, I wonder where that came from. So you don't trigger, you don't get upset, you stay in your forebrain, which is where you want to be, and you are able to problem solve a lot more readily than if you allow for the amygdala to hijack you and go into your fight or flight response. So you have to be, you have to kind of like um, Mae West said, if I have the choice between two things, I tend to pick the one I haven't done before. So you want to do the opposite of what you feel like doing. It's very counterintuitive, but if you can practice it and get good at it, it really changes conflict dynamics and, and it also, and that helps to shape your paradigm because if I have some tools and I can approach conflict differently, then conflict's not so scary. Conflict is no longer bad. It's just an opportunity for growth and change. Well, done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. Um, this has been really insightful. I've actually even just have like, you know, an insight as you were talking, I'm, I thought, oh, I see how I can do this differently. And so I appreciate it. And I, I really believe that those who are listening will be able to see from your, uh, your, um, skill set that you have, which is just lovely. Um, and the perspective that they'll be able to look at that and go, okay, I think I, I, I'm going to give myself some permission here to to listen to this, to take it in, and and then maybe um, you know implement some of those things. So thank you so much for thank offering that skill. Um, you know, we I always end the show with you by saying, "Can you come back?" <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, there's more, but I because I do think that there's more to talk about in terms of some of the things that you talked about, the different styles, and and there's a lot of. Um, just conversation about gender in the workplace and different things that are really, really important. And I have, I have children, well, they're adults now, um, that are, you know, they're starting out their careers and they're in university. And this conversation is really, really helpful. So uh, let's continue on. Uh, thank you for doing what you do best. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. 